0: what good did that do you by what you preach none but what that commence believes ain't got no eyes he can't enter the spirit land has to wander forever between the winds you get it reverend come on blanket head hello and welcome to the steal my name podcast i'm your host bob barrow it is episode nine time yes we're coming up on that big one zero so one more episode and I get to make a fanfare. Because as I've said before, if it's not a zero and a five, you don't really get to celebrate anymore. I'm just too old and curmudgeon for such things. But as I also promised last week, I'm going to do my best to keep this one short and sweet. Uh, four movies I know can be a lot, and next week I'm planning to go even crazier with more. So short, sweet, to the point, as consistent and as condensed as I can keep it. As I do a nice run-on with... Uh, with all my different simile choices here, but should be okay. I'm feeling classy. It's a classy film. So I set myself up real nice. Got my, my vanilla candle burning because I'm a basic bitch like that. And yes, I do think vanilla candles are the height of the, uh, of the scented candle arts. And I've got my cup of tea again, pinkies up, which I know, uh, went over real well last time. So we're going to sip out of the way here. Ah, it's good tea. And last time was my Slytherin mug. And this time I'm, Staying, trying to pitch it up another again, another classy notch, with my Emily Carr mug. uh, Mainly because I'm in a museum-y mood. Because this past weekend, I got to visit the National Gallery in Ottawa. I was visiting a friend, and we went there, and it was incredible. If you've never been, I can't recommend it enough. The place is absolutely massive. I'm used to things like the AGO, or the ROM these are these are big places these are world-class facilities are no they're no slouches. <laughs> no one would refer to them as that but they're manageable I guess you'd say in their own way. We were in the National Gallery for almost four hours and apparently we saw less than half of it. The place was crazy. The The main reason we went was for an exhibit called Birth of Monsters, which was focusing on medieval era drawings and etchings of just that, monsters. Dragons, chimeras, griffins, absolutely stunning stuff. There was a whole exhibit about indigenous art and not just North American indigenous, but... Pacific South Islanders, and South America, and Africa, and it was just, the whole place is, is just incredible. It's almost overwhelming, because you're just going from one gallery to the next, to the next, to the next. Around every corner is just another gigantic, wonderful painting or statue. The Modern Art Gallery, interesting. <laughs> Not really my flavor with Modern Art, but it was just just absolutely stunning. And Ottawa is just a, a beautiful city. I've been there a few times before, but to really get to hit the place on foot and not just do Parliament and those areas, which are incredible, but also just wander away from Parliament down into the actual neighborhoods. So spending a couple hours on feet and you get a a sense of pulse of a city. You know, having lived in Toronto for eight years, I'd always say because people were like, oh, Toronto's so big and you can't really get a flavor for it. Yes, there's the, the big things to go and see. You know, whether you're there for a museum or an event or the Dome or whatever. But if you really want to get to know Toronto, just pick a neighborhood and just hit it on foot. And I used to do that a lot. Just go on huge walks through the downtown core, through my old neighborhood on the Danforth. And that's when you start to get kind of a pulse of the place. You can feel the, the rhythm in your feet. And also, side note, the Shadow Frontenac, I feel like such a fucking tourist... I had no idea you could just walk in like that's how kind of backwoods I feel <laughs> sometimes despite having lived in a major city, but you can just walk in and that place is insane because I'd only ever seen it from the outside and it's like, looks like fucking Hogwarts. Like it's just wild. And I love ghosts and supernatural and all this stuff, but I don't, I, I don't parlay with it. I can't, I can't let myself get too sucked down that rabbit hole. One just, you know, education and belief and all that stuff. But I just, I know I'll believe it too much, but walking into that place, there was such a vibe and it felt so haunted. <laughs> it was just like, how do people stay in that place? Because it just, even second I went into the lobby, I'm like, oh yeah, this is a haunted place. Not like the Kool-Aid man there. Oh yeah, haunted. But no, it was absolutely excellent time. I cannot recommend the uh, the National Gallery enough. Go check it out. Dear Civic Duty, and it's complete uh, duty. And it's completely reasonably priced. You don't have to pay for the individual exhibits like you do at the AGO or the ROM. One price gets you into absolutely every show that they have on, so definitely check it out. But on to the main event, what we're here to talk about this week. Now, this is a film that was scheduled for, for Framing part, but it ended up getting away from me and it's something that i've wanted to talk more about and that's westerns it's something i only dabbled with a little bit at the end of my last show and it's also a genre that i i didn't have a lot of experience with until i was older i think when it comes to to westerns kind of maybe kind of like horror it's it's a genre that generally you have to be shown as a young person with with horror, it's easier if you have older siblings or something, but it's also more present in the culture, whereas Westerns, even just saying the word Westerns, it brings up a vibe that it's old, that it's an old-fashioned type of cinema. They're not made often anymore. They used to be kind of the bread and butter of of the movie business, at least in the United States and now it's every couple of years we might get one it's we've had a couple more recently in recent events but not to definitely not to the level that it was i didn't watch them as kids my my parents weren't overly into them there was no drive on their part to say oh you need to see this one you need to see that one there was a respect for that for that cinema but no no motivation to seek them out or watch them. After I got out of college, that's when I started to to look more into it, because when I was in school, we were definitely exposed to, to Westerns, namely The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, one of the pinnacle, you know, top-shelf Westerns ever made. So we studied that film, you know, researched it, looked into it. So my first exposure to that genre was spaghetti westerns namely the films of Sergio Leone Uh, right after film school I was given the box set of the the man with no name films and then I started perusing other spaghetti westerns Lee Van Cleef stuff as I talked about last week I absolutely loved those films but in terms of the classic Hollywood westerns I I haven't seen a lot and there's so many. Like it's there there's literally thousands of them. It's they were cranking them out, you know, the in the classic Hollywood system, Golden Era Hollywood, you know, the studios had a specific mandate, you know, we make this many westerns a year, we make this many comedies, we make this many dramas, this many musicals, this many dance pictures, dress pictures, etc. on and on and on. But it's something that I it's one of those gaps i guess you could say if i'm with most film people they'll usually have some gap in their in their in their knowledge or what they've watched and if you sit down and start to think okay well i fancy myself pretty well exposed to film and i get around and then you're like oh shit i i don't think i've seen any john ford pictures oh, shit, I, I think the only Frank Capra movie I've seen is It's a Wonderful Life. Or I haven't seen any Kurosawa, fil- Kurosawa films or Cassavetti's films or anything like that. And you start to realize, oh, shit, like these are monstrous gaps in, in not just what you're watching, but also in your education as, as a viewer and as a, a student of film and history, especially as you go back in cinema. Because there was so many more movies being produced by the studio back then and they're so much harder to find now because the video stores are gone and for the most part they sure as hell aren't being shown on television or the streaming streaming networks at all I I know there's a couple that kind of specialize in older films I think it was not this past weekend but the one before I spent all day on the couch watching it's like newer movies like the new Godzilla and the new Spider-Man and Alita Battle Angel excellent movie by the way and I was getting ready to turn the TV off, and I flipped over to normal TV and turned on Turner Classic Movies. Fucking amazing channel, Turner Classic Movies, and ended up sitting and watching the entirety of Key Largo with Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. And it was just absolutely wonderful. Let's film noir, not Western. But I think it's going to be harder and harder and harder for young people to be exposed to this stuff because some of these films, they're 70-plus years old, you know, the, the film I'm talking about today, it came out in 1956. You know, that that film's, I was about to say, is older than my mom. And that sounds so horrific thing to say, because my mom is not old, and she's absolutely wonderful. And when she listens to this, she's going to go, you son of a bitch. I made you, and this is how you treat me. But, but I think it still all comes back to the point that I have a massive gap with westerns. So I figured if I'm going to be talking about classic Hollywood westerns, I might as well talk about one of the big guns pun intended, and that is John Ford's 1956 film, The Searchers. So, synopsis. The Searchers, from 1956, as I said, starring John Wayne, Jeffrey Hunter, Vera Mills, and Natalie Wood. It is the story of an American Civil War veteran embarking on a journey to rescue his niece from the Comanches. Straightforward. Probably perfect description of any John Ford film, because it's just no fuss, no muss, straight to the point. Now, as I said, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I have a, a huge wealth of knowledge about John Ford or even John Wayne at all. Uh, I don't want it to come off that way. The I, I've done some research in here, but I wanted to have this more be about my experience, kind of my journey through the classic American Western without just trying to turn this into a an info dump so that I sound really smart and cultured. I'm not. This is a learning experience. As much as I hope you, the listener, get something out of hearing me talk about films that I know really well, I also don't want to shy away from talking about films that I'm just coming to. And again, call covering those knowledge gaps and, you know, really, really shameful holes in my list. So, John Ford, it's, it's a, he's obviously a person that I'm familiar with uh, from film school and through my own study afterwards of film and watching movies and hearing, especially people talk about films. When you look at a certain era of director, you most of them at some point or other will bring up John Ford as this pillar of American cinema. He's uh, a pillar in the way that someone like D.W. Griffith is, is a pillar. These were directors who were absolutely integral to their era of cinema and pushing the genre their genres forward and just the forms of cinema forward this is a man who won four Oscars for directing. He made over 140 films, films that included Stagecoach, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, The Grapes of Wrath, How Green Was My Valley. Like The list goes on and on and on. He's also very famous for his work that he did during World War II for the Allies and their filmmaking program when he was at uh, the Battle of Midway, etc., If you want to know more about that era of his career, I definitely suggest both the book and the subsequent uh, miniseries on Netflix called Five Came Back. Excellent look into that era of filmmaking and cinema and propaganda and all that stuff. Great. So, again, coming into this cold, there's a certain myth that comes with a film like The Searchers. I didn't know really what to expect. I didn't know how how violent it was going to be, maybe how dry it was going to be, how epic, how grand it was going to be. But the the film is it does have a very grand sense and this wonderfully huge presentation of the Old West that Ford was famous for in his pictures. And a lot of that comes from its setting. The film was shot like a lot of his westerns in Monument Valley in Nevada. And at the time they made this movie, when they were shooting it, it was actually the farthest possible place you could get from a railroad in continental United States. Like that's how isolated Monument Valley is. Now, if you're not familiar with that era area, just Google it as you're listening to this and you'll know. It's the, the famous rock pillars and mesas and stuff standing in this beautiful desert landscape. It's, it's quintessential the American West, when we think about it most people I think if you ask them to think what does a western look like to you where would it take place they're pro- if they don't know the name they're probably thinking of Monument Valley and he uses that landscape to absolute full effect whether it's his the wide shots to create this sense of incredible loneliness or visceral closed in and caverns and you know cracks in the rock it's absolutely stunning now, last episode we talked about this idea of the opening of the film, the first few minutes, establishing a promise to the audience, like a prologue. We talked about it in terms of the Ninja Turtles movies, and each one, for better or worse, delivered on those opening promises. And here, this is an excellent example, uh, an example in a way that is so singularly. Perfect, because in this opening shot he conveys everything you need to know about the film, and sets up what the entire film is going to be about, and the scale of the world, and the two opposing scales. This safe, we're indoors, we're we're with people, we're pushing the natural world, the harsh frontier away from us, and he does this several times in the film, and it's a shot that I'm sure most people most students of film are familiar with, is it's the shot through the doorway. The almost blacked out inside of the house shooting out into this absolutely epic landscape that just outside these frail wooden walls is this absolutely massive world that's almost too big for the average person in this film to, to really comprehend just how huge it is. It's nature on a truly awesome scale to use that term in its or use that word in its natural context and out of this landscape wandering in from the horizon comes John Wayne and he's been lost to his family having served in the Civil War and then some kind of shady chicanery in the years since before he came home they're not too clear on what he did or how he got his money and but he had fought this battle You know, right or wrong, he had fought it, and that had earned him the right to come home to his family. So he was able to come in out of the wilderness, cross this threshold, and step back into civilization for a moment. And that's going to create a perfect parallel to the end of the film. After this, you could say, semi-noble journey that he goes on, or a journey that starts with a sense of nobility. But really doesn't continue that way so that when we come to the end of the film and it's framed in the exact same way, he's now denied the right to cross this threshold. He can't go home again after what he did. Now, with a film like this, and I think with a lot of other films of its, of its ilk, and what I'm about to say is absolutely in no way a slight to, to the film. It's just almost a way of being able to break this down and, and talk about it in a manageable way. Because it's a very long film. There's a lot going on, and from, I can't really just you know go beat by beat second by second and take it down, because people write books about the searchers. They make entire documentaries about this film. But no offense intended to the film. It's almost a film that's easier to appreciate in sections, because it's a film that has moments that are so big. And and incredible and monumental, and then it's followed by moments that, while not tedious, you could say is aren't as grand as those other moments. Obviously, you can't have a film that's all big all the time. You know, back then it's it's pacing, it's roller coaster. I did find though that there was somewhat of a um, a notable juxtaposition between those segments. And I think some of that comes from Ford's shooting style, where he's not a huge movement director. He's, especially in this film, it's a lot of static shots, wide shots. Now, there are times, especially during some of the battles, where the, the pace really does pick up. And there's big tracking shots and horse charges and all kinds of crazy stuff going on. But it's specific scenes having watched this film that really stand out for me and the first major one other than that opening is the scene that that follows it it's the breakfast scene when they come into when this the kooky reverend comes in to deputize everybody and it was great because it it had almost a bit of a, a howard Hawksian bounce to it where there's Lots going on, lots of dialogue happening and people talking over each other and interrupting each other. And where's my coffee? Pass me this. And people coming in and out of the room. And it's if you haven't seen, if you're not familiar with the term when I say something like Hoxian, go and get a hold of His Girl Friday. Absolutely wonderful comedy starring Cary Grant. And it it falls apart at the end in terms of its uh, gender dynamics, the stereotype, but that's just unfortunately a product of the time. But that scene is in this film is wonderful. I loved that bounce because the film really does, he turns his tone on a dime in a lot of scenes, and I found sometimes it was jarring, but sometimes when it was character motivated, I thought it worked exceptionally well. And this scene is a perfect example of that because everybody's talking over each other, the... the the reverend who's, I'm not a reverend right now, I'm a cavalry captain or a ranger captain, and give him my coffee. I didn't get my coffee. Don't take that away, boy. And then every major character that we've been introduced to comes into the room, and then John Wayne comes into the room. And he hasn't said much yet. We've got a vibe that everyone's happy that he's back, but there's some insinuation that he's been up to some nefarious deeds in the meantime, and the second he comes into the room... The entire thing changes, and it's a beautiful switch. It's like listening to Rush change time signatures. You know something has changed, but it's so smooth that there's no jar to it at all. You're just like, oh, shit. And it just establishes the presence of this character and how everyone reacts to him and establishes this air of menace that Wayne's character carries with him throughout the film. That even though he's done with war in quotes, there's a a violence in him that is never far from being unleashed. And that can come out on the battlefield or it can come out at the breakfast table, which is adds a great depth to his character. Because with with something like John Wayne, it's not even. It's, it's almost like he's gone beyond as being a person, where he's almost this thing. John Wayne is is mythical in the way that you know Hercules is mythical or Frodo. Like the, he's almost he's larger than the man now. From his classic drawl to the way he spoke, he it's almost a caricature. He's been so heavily parodied, so heavily mocked and satirized that it's hard to take him seriously. So I got the T-burps, which is odd. Maybe it was those awesome soft tacos I made for dinner. Well, I should say I made the shells because I'm classy like that. So for myself, I've I've never, just total transparency, I've never given much thought to John Wayne. I've always kind of dismissed him as a bit of a product of his time you know that he kind of did one thing and parlayed that into an entire career because there was no one else doing that you know reach for the sky pilgrim kind of thing that he had about him and it's almost easier just to treat him as kind of a, a object of fun now more of the cari- the caricature more so than the actor But honest to God, there were scenes in this film where I could see the character underneath scenes where he had to put aside that classic stoic solid front that he always had where the the drawl dropped and that kind of almost monotone cadence that he speaks in dropped. There's a few scenes where he's yelling and I was actually I was shocked. I was like, holy shit. And this is going to sound like a stupid comment to some people, but it's how I it felt. I'm like, Oh fuck man, John Wayne can really act as <laughs> Stevie Ray Vaughn, man. That kid's going places. Tea break. But yeah, so that's, that was a hard thing for me to get past in this movie was John Wayne, but the character was so dynamic. And at, especially in this era of the Western, it's, we're so used to just this classic hero you know the the good boy that comes in and saves the day with his six guns and his spurs and he's just so saccharinely noble there's an excellent documentary that a lot of my talking points i've uh, i've learned i will say learned over lifted from and it's martin scorsese's documentary my journey through american cinema and i cannot recommend it enough i watch it on a regular basis and he talks about specifically Ford and the the Westerns and talking about how he changed and how the landscape changed from when he started with something like Stagecoach and John Wayne all the way up to The Searchers, where this idea of the Western hero is completely different than when it once started or where it once was where the the old west of the classic golden age of Hollywood is gone and it's something that the spaghetti westerns would definitely latch on to and I think this film must have had a huge impact on that because we have a character like John Wayne who's now I guess anti-hero in some sense isn't even really a strong enough word he's he's almost a villain he's more of a villain in this piece in some cases than, than the Comanches that he's attacking. And, you know, perfect example is that scene with, was the, uh, the bumper at the start of the show where he can't just let things lie. You know, he finds this, this dead Comanche who has been buried by his people. And the fact that, he is dead isn't good enough for Wayne anymore. This mission to rescue his niece has almost become secondary to this thirst for violence. And you could say a thirst for revenge, but we're never really presented with a clear idea of what he might have against natives because he can speak to them. We're we're shown that he has, he can speak certain native languages. And that scene, it's it's a scene that. Scorsese talks about, and it's probably the strongest scene in the whole film, where he shoots the eyes out of the, out of the dead Comanche. Because he can't just let his enemy be dead. He has to doom them in eternity according to their beliefs. He has to enact a spiritual death on these people, this, this ultimate degradation. Because what he's going through in the years that because this film takes place over a number of years, 10 plus years, they're looking for Natalie Wood's character. He's kind of pretending himself. He's acting as this kind of faux hero where he himself is going through this one long spiritual death as he drags people behind him and people end up getting killed and get to m- and are missing out on their lives. Because he couldn't let this go, this life of violence, this lone gunman attitude—it's almost—it's in effect Wayne's entire career that he had spent playing these kind of lone hero characters, and here it's—it's almost—it's really the only end, honest end, that these kind of men of violence can have, where you were all—they're always depicted as your riding off into the sunset and you've saved the day and you've you've been the hero and you fought the the noble the noble fight but here the yes they do end up saving natalie wood rescuing her in quotes at the end but there's the whole idea at this point is she better off where she is because yes it was it was horrific what happened to her her the her family's ranch is raided and there's this terrible scene where they have to put the daughter out the window and go run and hide in your behind your grandmother's grave which is perfectly shows the cruel realities of of life on the frontier at this time that you would have to make those decisions as a parent you know i watch my sister and my brother-in-law and some of the worst decisions they have to make in a day with their kids is okay if you don't want to eat the fucking cereal like just i don't give a shit eat eat the fucking granola bar like just just eat like i'm so tired of this and and i've seen so many parents do that you know whereas these parents have a plan in place that their kids know in case house is raided and everyone is murdered. Like, that's serious fucking problems. Like, that's when white people have problems. Not like white people problems nowadays, okay? Now, there's still that whole thing of, eh, should they've been there? They were probably stomping on people's lands. So, typical white person fashion, you probably made your own problem. But again, I'm being very reductionist, so don't peek. I understand it's a much bigger issue. So, cool? Cool. I like when we agree. But this change in the hero, and the hero that Wayne is portraying, that's really the big thing I got out of this film is that this idea of the the rescuing hero isn't isn't a thing anymore. The west that that Ethan, his character in this film is inhabiting, it's not really a place anymore for these simple, you know, lone ranger style heroes. The, this simple act of rescuing it, it doesn't even seem to be much of a priority for him after a while, where saving his niece, he doesn't really seem... He's committed to it, but it almost feels like the mission itself is what he's committed to, that saving her is just a proxy, even to the point when he finally finds her and sees that she's been taken into the tribe and is living as one of them, he wants to just shoot her and right up to the end of the film. We're not sure if that's what he's going to do. Is he actually going to save her or is he going to put a bullet in her because she's been taken over by the, you know, so-called savages as they're presented. Now that is, that is something we I have to discuss. There's no way to get around it in this film. While there is effort made to cast Actual Navajo that lived in the area, which is nice. the The lead actor, or playing Scar the War Chief, is he's a he's a white actor in makeup, and was it was common at the time. It, it's unfortunate, but it was common at the time. The representation is body at best. Uh, some places it's handled well, but in a lot of cases it's really jarring. I'd say specifically the scene where his companion who he's with accidentally buys a wife and now i get that the terminology like squaw and stuff which is offensive but they at the time it's what they would have said the scene where she tries to crawl into his blankets with him and he bodily double leg kicks her down a hill that was shocking i wasn't expecting that to happen i thought he'd just get up and stomp away but no just kicks her wow and it's played for laughs so there's scenes like that in the movie that are really shocking. And the scene where he's trading them hats for blankets and stuff. And it's played, you know, the, the older native is sitting there chomping a cigar. And it's it's rough. There's, I think for, for Ford and at that time, this counts as an effort made towards a more sensitive representation. But there is still obviously... A long way to go before it was handled better and today it's still handled poorly in in a lot of cases but it's it's a film that I don't know I would immediately sit down and want to watch again if I decided hey I want to watch a western right now I still don't think I'd go to this It's a film I would like to see again to study it maybe a little closer. It also makes me want to see more of Ford's westerns, because when you see a master at work, and it's obvious that you want to see more of his films, and it's obvious watching this film that he is a master of this genre. So many of the classic archetypes were invented by him, or at least not invented, were pushed forward and perfected by him. When you have such a monstrous filmography like this, as happened with a lot of the the classic Hollywood, the golden era Hollywood directors, when you make upwards of a 100 plus, or in this case, 140 films, you get a chance to perfect your craft, perfect your style, play in multiple genres, and really become so masterful. You can keep using the same word, but it's hard not to use words like that. My, My perspicacity is slipping. But it's, it's not an easy film to enjoy, but I think it's an easy film to respect. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think there's, there's a lot of films like that, that I've encountered. I, I wouldn't necessarily go, oh man, it's Sunday afternoon. I think I'm going to watch eight and a half by Fellini, but it's a film that nonetheless, I thoroughly respect. Right? And I think all of us have films like that where they're easier to respect than they are necessarily to sit down and watch. And again, that's not a condemnation. I know I might be being a little dismissive of this. If you're a fan of Westerns or just a fan of cinema in general, you do owe it to yourself to look deeper into history. Because I think for a lot of film people, especially people my age, If you didn't have a parent that was actively exposing you to this, the cinema you're familiar with started probably when you were a kid. You know, you might dip back in, you know, as far as Star Wars or Jaws or into the 70s or something. But I find if you go, most people, the average person, I would say, they don't go back very far beyond that. And there's entire eras of cinema. I'm not even talking going back to the silent era. I'm talking just going back into the 50s. And watching those films when so many of the of these master filmmakers were at their absolute peak. You know, the from Film Noir happening to all these directors having their lives changed by their world, their war experience, coming back and making some of their most important films of their career. And it's it's I again, I feel like I'm probably repeating myself here because it's this was a tough one because I find with a lot of these, it's either If it's a film I'm not super familiar with, I really want to like it. And I think that's also to make sure I have something to talk about. But I think there's also, with film people, you you don't want to get caught up in that embarrassment factor when you watch a film that's considered such a classic, but you don't have a super strong reaction to it. You know, I knew that, you know, the Leone Westerns were undisputed classics, and I had a very strong reaction to them even though the one that's considered the best, the good, the bad and the ugly is not my favorite. It's actually the one of the trilogy. I like the least. It reminds me a lot of this. I I think there's a lot of John Ford in something like the good, the bad and the ugly, or once upon a time in the West that wasn't necessarily there in fist for adult, fistful of dollars and a few dollars more, even though obviously his presence is felt very heavily over those films, his, the grand style wasn't necessarily felt in those first two films. Now, it's obviously budget constraints, etc. But I recommend the film. I, I genuinely do. I'd be interested to know what your reaction to it is. Because if you're not familiar with the genre like this or this era of cinema, it can be tough to just kind of walk in because you go in, you're like, okay, what is... I keep hearing about this, and I'm going to sit and watch it. And it's like, okay, I've gotten... A somewhat jarring film at times to watch, a somewhat uneven tonally and paced, very strange uses of humor that are very jarring and off-putting in some cases, some quite funny. The the scene where uh, Martin interrupts the wedding of his supposed betrothed and her and him and the fiance quote side to fight, but they you know, they're talking about the rules as they're walking outside and he stops and helps him out of his jacket and takes his hat and sets it down. I thought, I'm like, that's funny shit. That is such a small touch, but it it helps to bring bring us back out of this grim atmosphere. And almost what I like is that more straight-ahead grim western. I guess that's what I'm trying to get around to here. And I think The Searchers is definitely the beginning of that. It's kind of that prototype that would lead into the 60s and when the Europeans kind of took over making westerns and the landscape stayed grim the the hero never came in out of the cold there were humor moments but they never diffused the tension and i think that's what you could really look at this film as and the easiest way to look at it is it's the beginning of a change a seismic change after that because really Westerns have stayed kind of grim. You had Clint Eastwood when he made his Westerns, then up into Unforgiven. And even now when a director, every few years when we get a Western, they're grim affairs. They're, you know, they're taking the seeds that the searchers started and really fully exploring that darker side of the West. But A very enjoyable film, a very interesting film. And I think that's the big takeaway from this. So this is fun. I'm glad I could finally take this one off the bucket list. So Because it has been on that bucket list for a very long time. So it was nice to finally get rid of it. But moving on, now that we're done with the Old West, let's get into the New West, the Futuristic West, with episode 9 of DS9, episode entitled Move Along Home, from March 14th, 1993. The Wadi from the Gamma Quadrant visit DS9, thereby making first contact with the Federation. When they catch Cork cheating, they let him off by playing a special game. Okay, this, this episode. All right, so there there are things... It, this is a tough one, because this episode kind of does eat butt in a lot of ways. But we'll start with the good stuff. So what's fun about this one is it's, it's the first episode that features... A an example of an actual official first contact with a new species coming through the wormhole from the Gamma Quadrant. We had met Tosk earlier in an excellent early episode, so that was technically their first contact with a a new species from the Gamma Quadrant. But it wasn't an official Federation example of first contact procedures. So here we get to see that everyone's in their dress uniforms, they're doing their thing, and. They're meeting this new species, the Wadi, and they show up. Everyone's all prim and proper, and they're expecting to go through this very formal federation process. And all these guys want to do is play games. They were promised that there would be games. So that's all they care about and catch the the senior staff completely off guard with that. And that's a fun idea. You know, usually first contact, especially on Next Generation, it was all handled very formally. And they would go and they would meet people who wanted to be met and go down and talk staunchly. Normally, that would catch them up in some kind of intrigue. But here, these new species, they they couldn't give a shit about anything that the federation has to say that's not what they're there for they're not there for the federation they're there for the games that deep space 9 has to offer so that's kind of fun to see them just sweep past all the the federation formalities so if you want games on ds9 you go to corks and of course all that he cares about is whether they have money because he he's cork that's all he gives a shit about now this brings up a fun little moment in Star Trek, because Next Generation and the original series established that the Federation doesn't use money. They've evolved beyond the need of any kind of physical currency, and the whole goal of their species is self-improvement. Because when you live in a culture like the United Federation of Planets, where you have things like replicators and transporters and interstellar travel, there's not really this need to accumulate items anymore or personal wealth because you have everything. Anything you want, you can just go to the replicator and it will make for you. So, but the rest of the galaxy doesn't really operate on that. So, in the alpha quadrant, the standard unit of currency, which I'll talk will come up more and more as we do this uh, if I do this rewatch, is a currency called gold press Latinum. and it is a substance called latinum, which is suspended in gold bricks. Slips, strips, bricks, and bars. There we go. <laughs> that's the the four types of currency. Because when you have endless amounts of planets, gold no longer becomes something that's rare. It's something that would be indigenous to basically every M-class planet, which is what we live on. So it's not something that's a precious commodity anymore, but latinum is. It's this liquid substance that's suspended in the gold itself. And there's a great scene where you're watching Cork try and establish what kind of money these people have, because they wouldn't have gold-pressed latinum, so they're, they bring out these sticks that are very valuable on their world, and of course his first reaction is they're sticks, and then they bring this very fancy nectar, this liqueur that's incredibly rare on their world and would be worth a small fortune to them, but he and doesn't like it, it's just garbage. So, it's that classic, you know, one man's treasure is another man's garbage, or vice versa, until they break out a big box full of precious gems, and now Cork's interested. But of course, the first thing that Cork tries to do when they start winning too much in the dabble game, which is their version of roulette, he tries to cheat them. And that's really what this episode is it's a morality lesson for Cork, because he's been set up to this point as a bit of a swindler and a cheat. And in this ongoing effort to kind of humanize him a little bit, we need to see him get put in his place. As far as the aliens go, the Wadi themselves, it's pretty basic. You know, all the Star Treks ran a gamut from cheesy Alien of the Week all the way up to wonderful classic Trek designs. Basically, all of them coming out of the pen and hands of a designer named Michael Westmore. Now, for film fans, you might know him. He's the man that created the makeup for Rocky and countless other films. But he was the lead designer for the alien makeups on Next Generation, DS9, I believe up into Voyager. He worked on the show, and he was designing on all of them. He hand-applied Dax's spots every day because he only liked the way he did it. And you get anything from humans that just look like us in some kind of wig and funny outfit with a bit of paint or something on their face all the way up to the designs of the, the Ferengis and the Romulans and the Jem'Hadar and Odo and all those beautiful classic makeups. This falls at the lower end of the spectrum. They're just dudes and ladies in funny costumes with a wig and what I'm assuming is some kind of tattoo on their forehead, or maybe a painted symbol, it's it's weak. O- overall, here's the big... Other than the few fun moments, this is a weak sauce episode. This one feels like a plot that was from... It's Are You Afraid of the Dark Level plotting. The characters, the senior staff, get transported into the game the Quark is playing, and they have to play this game while the character on the outside is playing to try and help them get out Uh, it's it's weak from the cheesy makeup designs to the cheesy sets to the cheesy plot it's just cheese it's cheese plain and simple it's it's eight cheese pizza from Papa John's it's just it just kind of sucks it's the it's this kind of episode that hurt the series early on because it's what caused a lot of hardcore fans to just start writing it off because TNG was still on the air. So if you were watching DS9 that day, and because it's syndication, the episodes could be playing at the same time, if you encounter an episode like this and go, really, this is what I have to deal with? You could just turn the channel and watch better Star Trek on another channel. And I know with a lot of fans that wrote the show off and haven't come back to it, they either go, oh, it was cheesy and crappy, or it got way too dark and complicated. This is one of the cheesy and crappy examples. There's some fun moments, but overall, this episode is a complete miss. It's not an episode I would ever choose to watch. If I'm just watching some DS9, this one is rough. It's embarrassing. There's scenes, especially when they're doing the little hopscotch game, where you can tell even the actors feel a little embarrassed, that Alan Moraine shit. It's, it's just bad, and I, I hate to say that, because I love DS9 and I love some of the character moments in the show but it's it's all the wrong stuff that they focused on here but that's what happens you have 25 episodes of TV to write every year so not every single one is going to be magic the show's still finding its footing and it's still struggling with whether to be dark and gritty and dramatic all the time or focusing on these moments of levity and lighter episodes, you could say. And this one, unfortunately, just takes a bit of a bath on that front. So, But things are going to pick up again next week. For my book, uh, to stick with the Western motif, a couple of weeks ago I read Dragon Teeth by Michael Crichton. Now, this was a trunk novel that he had written shortly after he published his first novel, The Andromeda Strain, and he wrote this originally in 1974, but it went into a trunk. And uh, for those that aren't familiar, trunk novels are books that authors write a draft of or write a chunk of. And for whatever reason, the plot's not working, the character's not working, the publisher says no, X number of reasons, it goes into the proverbial trunk and sits there for a number number of years. Uh, King has resurrected a few of these trunk, several of these trunk novels in his career, most famously being the Bachman books. These are novels he wrote before Carrie. Uh, Rage, Long Walk, Roadwork, and Running Man. Uh, later on, uh, Blaze would be resurrected because it was written in that era as a Bachman book, which I've also read, and it's it's a, a fun little story. And so this one, written in. 1974, and published uh, posthumously in 2017 following his death. Now, the book is set in 1876 and follows a rich kid from the East Coast named William Johnson and his trip to the American West after he makes one of those famous old-timey gentlemen's bets. With a fellow classmate that, oh, you don't have the gahonies to go and on this awful summer furlough program out to the West to dig up dinosaur bones. And he's like, bitch, watch me. So he goes and, you know, to ensues. and sues. In typical Crichton fashion, there's this great blend between real world science and technology or history and events mixed with fictional characters and fictional contexts. Now, the two big real-world characters here are the two paleontologists that William falls in with. And that's Charles Marsh and Edward Drinker. Now, these were real-life paleontologists at the time, gentlemen scientists, as it were. And they were known for an incredible real-life rivalry that they had with each other, where they were constantly at odds, whether it was over their theories or finding new places to dig up bones. They spent most of their career doing just as much fighting as they did digging. Now, it's a trunk novel. And once you get into the book, it starts to feel like a trunk novel. It starts off very strong. With this, you know, William falls in with this one professor, learns, you know, he come gets his photography equipment, learns a skill that justifies him going on this trip, not just because daddy has money. And it starts very strong. We're going by train, moving through different cities. And in, as I said, typical Creighton fashion, he brings this world to life in a way that's gritty and real. You almost feel like you're reading historical fiction. It's the way he perfectly captured it in something like Eaters of the Dead, which they made the movie 13th Warrior out of, or any of his sci-fi novels even, where you feel like you're reading this wonderful blend of real world and fiction. You know, like historical fiction, but fictional real world, I guess. And he accomplishes that here for a good long while into the book, But around the halfway mark, it kind of starts to go off the rails and it just starts to feel like he didn't know where his plot was going anymore. So things just start to happen. This story that he had of a straight-ahead tale of this student falling in with one professor, then falling in with another, and this kind of back-and-forth that he's caught up in while they battle over these bones, that's a good story. That's a neat tale for someone like Michael Crichton to dig into, pun intended. But it really goes awry, and things, just as I said, start happening. And he ends up in Deadwood, like the actual Deadwood in the West, he then runs into Wyatt Earp and they have and his brothers and they have gunfights. And it's it just gets silly in a way. Now, I've obviously I'm not going to compare myself as a writer in any way, shape, or form to someone like Michael Crichton. He's he's written some absolutely incredible books. And he has a he had a hand with his fiction that was just wonderful. When he was when everything was firing, oh my god, I think I read Sphere in two days. Like it was so good. But I know what it's like to be working on a novel that you have a good, strong idea for. And then all of a sudden your outlining either runs out or stops working. And you just start looking for the next thing to happen instead of having natural continuations of what your characters are doing and their drama motivating the next event to happen in the book. So, as I was reading this, I could think of moments, because my first, obviously unpublished, but my first novel that I wrote, uh, Red Hill Valley, is is a Western. It's a horror Western. And I remember I got to a certain point where I was like, shit, I, I need scenes. I need something to happen. What could happen next? Oh, this could happen. And I could see echoes of what I had gone through in this book because it it really does go completely off the rails. And the last half of the book is nowhere near as interesting as the first half when they're digging up bones and he's bringing in these scientific techniques and the how archaeology operated at the time. That stuff was fascinating. It's his best. It's what he does best, this blending of the real world. So you don't know where the fiction stops and the real world begins, or vice versa. Here, you know that it's just completely wackadoo. You know this guy didn't hang out with Wyatt Earp. You know all of these things didn't happen. I have an easier time buying the fantastical elements in his other books than I do believing this, because it it plays out almost like a video game or just some kind of wish-fulfillment fantasy with this kind of nerdly western or eastern dude becoming a a western tough guy and going back and punching the dickhead in the face it's it's if you're a creighton fan i recommend it just to get kind of a glimpse into where he came from it's definitely no i would not suggest starting there in any way uh just through luck of the draw I started with his first book, The Andromeda Strain, because I found it at the uh, at a little uh, kiosk. kiosk. Uh, we had a little uh, convenience store when I worked at CIBC that was in the building, and they sold paperbacks for like two, three bucks. So I saw Andromeda Strain one day. My book was done, so I bought it. Fun read. Went on to read Sphere and Congo, the Jurassic Park books. All great time. Do not start with dragon teeth because you'll read it and go, this is the Michael Crichton that everybody's talking about? No, I'm done. No, start elsewhere, read a bunch of his books. And if you want to learn more about an author's process and how books sometimes get lost or plots fall apart, despite the author's best intention, that's when I would recommend this one more as a, an interesting artifact of a, of an excellent author, but still a fun little read recommendations to wrap us up again staying on message because I cannot get off message this week Uh, for movies I would recommend tombstone the absolutely excellent western uh featuring a better much better representation of Wyatt Earp uh, starring Kurt Russell everyone's in this movie it's probably Val Kilmer's single best performance in a film I'll be a huckleberry like every single scene he's in as uh, Doc Holliday he just steals it but everybody and their dog is in this film And also, uh, as I brought up earlier, my favorite of the Man With No Name movies, I'd recommend Sergio Leone's for a few dollars more. Uh, It's Clint Eastwood and Lee Van Cleef. Lee Van Cleef in one of his rare hero roles. And it's my absolute favorite of the three. One of my favorite Westerns of all time. Uh, It's probably up there with Tombstone. So these are probably my two favorite Westerns. I love both these movies to death. For books... Again, because I'm just a Western horror this week, I'd recommended Mistborn. I can't remember which episode I did it on, but uh, that was phase one. That was the classic high fantasy era. He's Brandon Sanderson is breaking these books up into phases. So phase two uh, is more of a Old West meets steampunk style universe, but with the magic system he had established before. And thus far, three out of four books in this series have been published. Uh, The Alloy of Law, Shadows of Self, and the Bands of Mourning. Fun books. The world is interesting. They are not epic fantasy. They are not high fantasy like the first three Mistborn books are. I would not recommend reading uh, Final Empire, Well of Ascension, and Hero of Ages, and then immediately picking up Alloy of Law, because I think you will be disappointed I was disappointed when I did it that way, but when I took a break and then read them separately, I got a lot more enjoyment out of them because they're pulpier. The characters aren't, I don't, they're not as strong, but the world is still very interesting. And it's very neat to see an author take a world that was so popular, because I think outside of Wheel of Time, Mistborn is probably his most popular books. They're my favorite of his other stuff. I like them more than the Stormlight books. And I like the Stormlight books. But it's fun to see an author so confident in his world that he'll com- he'll take it and completely rewrite it. Redo the rules and push it forward in a way that these are sequels and we get a couple of reoccurring characters from the first run. But it's totally revisionist, totally brand new. He's moving the universe forward. Kind of like that hop from the original Star Trek to the next generation. It's pushing everything forward. So, fun books, check them out. Next week brings us to episode 10, the big one zero. So I thought, why not just go completely fucking mad? Why not? It's my show. I can do whatever I want. I'm lucky like that. And if no one wants to listen, well, all I did was waste my time watching some of my favorite movies. For episode 10, I'm going completely crazy and going to be discussing the entire Phantasm series. Yes, Phantasm 1, 2, 3, 4, and unfortunately 5. Not my favorite, but I'll talk about that next week. Phantasm has long been my favorite franchise. It's so weird and strange and kooky and different. There's absolutely nothing like the Phantasm series, so I won't start gushing too much here because there'll be a lot to unpack on the next episode. But that's what we're gonna be talking about next week. So until then, you can find me on Facebook at Steal My Name Cast. You can find me on SoundCloud at the Steal My Name Podcast. Uh, like, follow, subscribe, share episodes with your friends. Shoot me a message. All that would be great. Love to hear you guys are feeling about the episodes. What you like, might like me to. Talk talk about. But I'm going to wrap this up real quick, because as I promised, this one's going to be much shorter, and I'm going to bring this one in under an hour, because I'm great like that. So once more, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, remember to steal someone else's name, because this one is already taken.